So I am uh, in a, a series that we're talking about the, the temple, and um, as, as, a, as I expected, it, it has not been the quick little four-week thing that I, I planned out in the, the beginning. Last week, I, I told you that that was a sermon that I put together on Saturday because I just felt like the Lord was shifting things, and, and so this is the one I was going to preach last week, and there's like a whole smorgasbord in, in the middle of things I think the Lord wants to say about this. The, the more I look at this, it's so relevant to us, and I, I think we can easily skip through these things as, as metaphor or as, as ancient history and, and, and not really understand the story of it, and, and that's why uh, we, we talked about doing this as a study through the book of Hebrews, and if you've got the time on your, I know some people are actually reading along in Hebrews, it's such an amazing book, and, and I think that it's a framework that presumes a lot, so there's a lot, especially for us now to, to learn, you know, and if we're living in America today in 2020, which you are, you know, then the temple seems foreign and ancient and not as, as, as relevant. And I, I think, at least for me, the, the longer I look at this, I see the Lord's goodness throughout the ages. I see his power. I see the, the directive as he's redeeming and restoring so much. Uh, I want to start off with a, a quote here. Soren Kier Kierkegaard, I don't know if you all are fans of his or not. Anybody know that name? A few? All right. He's, a, he's an interesting, oh, his name's so small there. That's not on purpose. Um, I don't know why that came up so small. But, but this is a, a quote from one of his books that says, Life is not a problem to be solved, but a reality to be experienced. Interestingly enough, if you are a, a fan of the science fiction series Dune, this is requoted in Dune, no rights given to Kierkegaard. <laughs> so <laughs> but th this is a, is, it's kind of a, a marvelous way, I think, for us to understand, maybe not that we, we agree with this necessarily, but we need to realize that I think we have a perspective that we bring before everything that we see. We have lenses that we look at the world through. And I think we're always assuming that our lenses are correct. They're not always correct. And I, I think one of the things that, that helps us to realize is whenever I do discipleship with somebody one-on-one, -on -one, one of the first things that we always do is, is know yourself. Uh, understand how you view the world, right or wrong. Just realize that this is how you view the world. How do you view other people? You know, we can talk about the, the, the Machiavellian, you know, kind of idea that everybody is predominantly evil, you know, and that they're going to get away with whatever they can, and, and they're going to go ahead and, and try to do that. So you see people suspiciously, right? Because you see other people as, as evil and greedy, selfish, and, and power-hungry, and so you don't trust them as far as you can throw them. And except for little children, you can't throw people very far. And then compare that to maybe a, a worldview where you say everybody's creating God's image. There's innate goodness in everyone right? And so what you need to do maybe is, is see the good, dig for the gold, recognize who they are. And now the question comes before, like, what is a biblical worldview? What is God's worldview? How does he see these things? And so we're not going to get into all of that today, except to say, you've got to realize you bring a perspective to everything that you do. When you read scripture, when you look at the temple, when you look at each other, there's a lens you're looking through. And, and recognize that so that you can even say, Lord, Am I seeing this clearly? Am I not? This is why we, we make a big deal about discernment. We, we hope and we expect and we're, we're going to try to train that everybody is, is a discerning person. And, and what that means is that when we do have words and tongues, right, when the spirit is moving, whenever we have somebody come up to this mic, you're able to discern, to recognize, is that the Lord? Is that not the Lord? I, I love the Bereans in scripture who eagerly looked it up to say, like, could this be true? Is God really this good? I always thought he was this, this monster that we had to try to appease, but, but you're telling me that he's gracious and merciful. Is, is that in here? 
And we talked about this morning in the pre-service prayer, like this is the story from all along, that God is good, that his love, has, as Amy said, came full circle. It, it started off there, and here we are again with, with love being the, the heartbeat that drives us. So I offer the, this, this quote, not necessarily as a biblical concept, but a way to realize the lenses that we, that we wear when we read the Bible and we live a God-given full life. But I don't want you to rush away from this because this might be enough for you this morning. If so, you can, you can, you can leave now. I won't, I won't take offense. I, I understand how this works. It's, it's okay. Um, because here's the thing. If I understand everything as a problem to be solved, guess what? I see problems. I seek solutions, right? That's how I see it. You, you know, a, a lot of us live this way, where, where we find problems, maybe where they're not there. You, you have somebody sharing their heart with you, and you're looking for, what can I do to fix this, right? And often, I, this comes up in marriages all the time, I don't want you to fix this, I just want you to listen. And then you're like, but I can fix it. <laughs> Why? Well, we have this worldview, right? It's a problem to solve. I have a hammer, everything's a nail, I can hit it with this hammer and I can do my job because I want to prove myself, I want to prove my worth and this is how we're supposed to live life, right? Is, is by solving these problems. And if that's your perspective, it affects what you do. It affects your understanding of God. It, it, this, the, the opposite of this, right? Understanding that life is a, is a problem to be solved means when you get to the pearly gates, you expect a test, right? And the test is going to be whether you can pass it or not whether you, you've solved it the right way, if you knew the right answers to the quiz, right, or whether or not you've done the right action to check all the right boxes, our perspectives really matter. And if we don't challenge them, if, we don't, if we're not aware of them, I'm not sure that we're going to be growing towards the kingdom of God. So Kierkegaard's, Kierkegaard's sorry, that was harder for me to say. I'm not, I'm not native. Um, his simplicity then is saying that life is meant for living. I think that that's actually kind of beautiful. Life is meant for living. It, it's this, this verse that we've, we've said before, Leah shared this already, right? For freedom, he set us free. I can't tell you how many years I legitimately hated that verse. Like legitimately, it's like, it's so dumb. Like it's, it, it says the same thing twice. It's, it's, it's like, for freedom, he set us free. Okay, give me something I can sink my teeth into. And then at some point in time, I don't even remember what it was, I just realized, for freedom, he set us free. Like that, it's a self-fulfilling, it's satisfying to him to see us free. It's not so that we would do these things that he set us free. It, it's, it's not so that, that we could, you know, become this thing that he wants us to be that he says free. For freedom, he set us free because that's what the kingdom of God looks like. And the profound simplicity of that just floors me still. And I hate that I spent years looking at that with slanted eyes thinking, oh, you know what, I got to read that <laughs> passage again that I just kind of think, skip over. like, what, what's the point of that? It's profound. It tells you about the heart of the Father that for freedom, he set us free. So life is meant to be lived. I don't know that we can actually argue with that point, <laughs> right? It, 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 if it was just a test and God already knows all things, then why do we have to live this out? Why do we have to go through this, this, this with the ups and downs and everything? Because if he already knows if I'm going to be in, in heaven or hell at the end of my days, th then why do I have to do this? That's that mentality again. Do you see? We're, we're bringing that mentality saying, well, it's just a test and I just have to prove myself by the end of it. But if we can understand that life is meant to be lived, 
And there's joy and pleasure of the Lord that there's work to be done that reflects his goodness and his glory, that, that all of this kind of works together in the, the aspect of who our Father is. I think it gives us hope. There's no implicit task and to do. There's no grand test at the other end to make sure we answer the question correctly at the pearly gates. You're permitted to be. You're encouraged to taste and see. I'll say, of course, that there are problems that need solutions. We know this. There's work that has to be done. We know this. But the greater story, what God intended in creation, is much simpler and more beautiful. Sin corrupts and tarnishes, but the work on the cross is enough. The work on the cross is enough that we can come into a simple, fulfilled beauty, a satisfaction with purpose, because the cross is enough. Because the, the curtain in the temple has been torn that we don't have to strive, that we don't have to work, that we can actually come before him, maybe with fear and trembling, but receiving graceful fulfillness and, and, and a fullness of joy as he promised us. There's a, a quote. I don't believe we came up with this, <laughs> but I couldn't find it anywhere that I've heard kicked around the vineyard, so I know if at least I didn't come up with this. But it's, it's a simple statement. Remember when it was simply enough to love Jesus? It still is. I, I love that. Do you remember when it was enough to love Jesus? And then we make it about so much more, right? <laughs> Where it can, Okay, it can't just be loving Jesus. Like, we've got to do things. We, we have to become something. We, we have to fill this room. We've we got to go out there and do all this. Stuff. And we busy ourselves. And the simple reminder, do you remember when it was enough to love Jesus? It's still a straight wimber. So William, William knew wimber. So that <laughs> I'll, I'll vouch for that. You can't find it online. I've been looking. <laughs> I was looking for it. So how beautiful. This is our legacy, right? And I think we need this reminder now, maybe more than ever. You remember when it was enough to love Jesus? It still is. The idea, I, I read this online, this one I can find a source for. The idea of having to earn a living implies by default you don't actually deserve to be alive. I heard that, that actually kind of struck a chord in me that just was like, ooh, <laughs> right? Do you, how, what do you do to earn a living? But this is, again, the lens that we look at ourselves through, right? You have to prove your merit. You've got to prove your worth. Justify your existence. Justify the house you live in. Justify the relationships you're in. You look at somebody, how did he end up with her? You know, <laughs> justify this. How, what, oh, he's got to have a great sense of humor. <laughs> Whatever this might be. We look at these things with this lens, right? Because what? Because we don't understand these things as the Lord does. We don't have the simple beauty that, that it's simply enough, that grace is sufficient, that there's purpose maybe in just being. We feel the need to justify ourselves, to justify all these things. We're constantly trying to prove our merit and prove our worth to ourselves, to others, and even to God. And maybe, just maybe, it doesn't have to be that way. There's a lot of questions that I've brought before God that he's totally uninterested in answering. Have you ever had this problem? C.S. Lewis seems to agree. He says this in A Grief Observed. Can a mortal ask questions which God finds unanswerable? Quite easily, I should think. All nonsense questions are unanswerable. <laughs> How many hours are in a mile? Is yellow square or round? Probably half the questions we ask, half of our great theological and metaphysical problems are like that. Whoa. <laughs> Thanks for disrupting thousands of years of theology, C.S. Lewis. 
But I think he's on to something with this. We busy ourselves with so many questions. We busy ourselves trying to justify ourselves intellectually. It takes no great degree. It takes no doctorate to come into the kingdom of God. I, it just doesn't. That how beautifully simple that a child can say yes to the Lord and they are as redeemed, as restored, as full, as righteous as they need to be before the Father himself. They cannot write a paper on the theological implications of Kierkegaard's statements and they don't have to. Neither do you. You remember when it was enough to simply love Jesus? It still is. So what I'm saying is maybe my framework is wrong. Me. I'm talking about myself here. Maybe I'm asking the wrong questions. You know, I've, I've asked God so many times, what would you have me do? Maybe you've done this too. Like, like in the late night hours, just like pouring my heart, like, God, what do you want me to do? If you would just tell me what I have to do, I would do it. Just tell me, what do you want me to do? And often I met with silence. And I feel shame and guilt and doubt. Like, why did God not tell me to do anything? Did he not choose me for something? What is going on? And this simple idea, maybe I'm asking the wrong question, has completely revolutionized my life. I'm so focused on trying to prove myself, on trying to do something for the kingdom of God, on, on trying to, to justify my salvation before him by being a producer, right, that I don't have to just consume grace. I want to give back. It's like, what can I do? And he's saying often, just be. And if I ask him, Lord, who do you want me to be? I get an answer like that. He talks to me about being a father. He talks to me about being a dad. He talks to me about being a, a, a co-worker in the office. He talks to me about all of this stuff, and I hear it clearly, but I think, but what do you want me to do? <laughs> because I want a problem that I can bring a solution to. I have this broken perspective that I have brought to the gospel that I continue to perpetuate throughout my life of trying to make this about something I do rather than who I am going to be. So you'll hear me say this over the next few months. Where do I find the Lord's pleasure? It's not where I find self-satisfaction. It's not where I find pride and, and purpose. But where do I find the Lord's pleasure? On being. Our scripture for today, knowing that we are the living stones of the temple, as it says in Hebrews and elsewhere, is this. I am the vine, you are the branches. So we've got living stones, we have vine and branches. Two slides flipping back and forth. These are the things. Knowing that we're the living stones, he then says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Jesus, why so many metaphors? <laughs> why, why do you got to change the picture on us like this all the time? Jesus really liked metaphor. But, but the, the profound takeaway I want you to hear this morning. So that's the scripture. Now here, here's my, my succinct little thing, all right? The temple is not the synagogue. Okay, I'll get there. Just, just completely on this one, all right? The temple is not the synagogue. You know this. I know this. It's logical that the temple is not the synagogue. But do you know how many times in my life I conflate those two? Whenever I think about these things in the ancient context, it's like, oh, it was either the temple or the synagogue where he said or did something. And it, it has almost no real crystallized meaning for me as to why, what would happen where. And, and, and though I know that they're different things, they kind of all meld into this one kind of purpose of like, uh, it's, it's somewhere where something happened kind of like that. 
And I think we all maybe conflate those places. We understand they're separate, but when we think about it, it's much less clear. So because I think it's intentional that the temple is not the synagogue, <laughs> and in Christ's days he was at both, what does it mean? Jesus was at the temple as a baby. It's where he met Simeon. We talked about that, where uh, Simeon prophesied over Christ. As a young boy, he was at the temple asking questions. He healed a paralytic at the pool in Bethesda, and later on Jesus ran into him at the temple. So maybe that counts for something. He cleared that out from the money changers at the temple. It's a little bit of a stretch maybe, but you know when that curtain was torn? I was in the temple. At the synagogue, he was teaching at the synagogue. He was reading from Isaiah. He entered into his ministry, and it says, as was his custom to teach in the synagogue. So there he is, declaring his purpose, declaring his ministry, coming out, saying, this is fulfilled in your, in your presence right here in the synagogue. He healed at the synagogues. So many passages, teaching and healing and teaching and healing. The man with the shriveled hand, healing on a Sabbath at the synagogue. I'm not going to go into a, a great detailed thing on, on why I think that each of those matters, but to say that, that Christ himself, the eternal high priest, as we've been reading in Hebrews, he operated in more than just priestly behavior. He operated in more than just priestly behavior. He did not just go into the temple and disappear into the Holy of Holies and disappear behind that curtain and just spend his time with the Father, with, the, with that, that great glory at that mercy seat, just being there in the glory of God all the time. Jesus didn't do that. These are different places. I think it's intentional that they're different places. So, so what? Let, let's rewind what we've been talking about with the temple, right? God's intent was always to be close to his people. That's why there was the tabernacle. That's why we have the temple. God is putting himself in the middle of life. He's saying, here I am. I want to be close to you. That was the, and if you want to come close, there's a way. You can wash. You can come close. That's the plan. That's the design that, that God is not far away, that God is not, not somewhere where you have to, to travel a pilgrim's journey to, but God is there. You can go spend time in his presence. God's presence isn't a monument of what was, but it's the living, acting, directing presence that's internally present and going someplace. Things that have been accomplished and settled don't have to be rediscovered and reaccomplished. That's what we said. It's moving in a direction. We went from the tabernacle to the temple, and we see in Revelation that there will be no temple, and there's no temple now. Why? Because God is with his people. We are the living stones of that temple. Things are moving in a direction, and it's not a monument in the past. Brandt talked about uh, it's incomplete, but it was a that we have a completeness brought about this through Christ, that Christ accomplished these things that are done. The temple last week we talked about as a place for celebration, a place for your healing to be seen, for restored relationship, for giving out the bounty that you receive, celebration in giving, all these wonderful things. But today I want you to hear this. The entirety of God's will, purpose, and presence isn't contained in the temple. It wasn't then. It isn't now. The temple and the synagogue were separate places. There was, by design, God spilling out over the land. I think that this is a people, uh, a mistake people have been making since the very beginning. The American church is a small subset of the kingdom of God. The American church is a small subset of the kingdom of God. I've talked about this before. If, if, you, if you were to average out all people in the, in the world, they are not white guys on acoustic guitars. <laughs> they are most likely 
Asian, right, and probably not with an acoustic guitar. This is going to be my limited knowledge of that too. But right, we are a small subset of the kingdom of God, and it does us well to remember that. Charismatic church, charismatic faith is a small subset of the kingdom of God. Church life and potlucks is a small subset of the kingdom of God. Now, none of this is saying that this stuff is bad, right? But it is not the entirety of what the kingdom of God is meant to be. It's not the entirety of God's expression of love for all of creation. There's the vine and the branches. There's the living stones, the temple and the synagogue, the life, wholeness, God's presence. I want you to hear this. God's life, God's presence is more beautiful. It is deeper. It is better. It is richer than you imagine. It's better than you understand. It's better than you've been taught. And I include all the teachings that I've offered to you in that. That's the reality of this thing. We, we scratch the surface of it. And we say, oh, that's enough for me for today. It might be enough for you today. But keep the perspective. When you walk out there and you see the beauty of creation, that, that this is a small subset of all that the Lord wants for us. We ask the wrong questions in the church most of the time, I would argue. We bring the wrong assumptions. We bring broken systems and practices into the church and they work fairly well for a fairly good amount of time, and we think, okay, that's good enough for today. We'll get through this. So I'm going to teach you a little bit of architecture. Does anybody here know what strodes are? Strodes. I did not make this up. You can look this up on Wikipedia. This is part street. Here, I got a picture of this. This is part street, part road, okay? Streets are meant for humans. Roads are meant for cars. Streets are meant to be walkable. Roads are meant to be high transit corridors, all right? What we have made are strodes. Guess what? They're dangerous for people and frustrating for cars. <laughs> and if I put up a picture like this, you know what everybody thinks? Oh, I know where that is. One of the saddest things, a picture like this on every internet forum I found, everybody says, oh, that's got to be the intersection right here by where I live. And somebody else says, no, 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 that's in Minnesota. No, no, that's in Illinois. No, no, it's in North Carolina. No, I see that in Georgia. We have made strodes everywhere, and they don't satisfy any of these designs. They're dangerous for humans, slow for cars, and one of the most common things to spring up in America. But if you look at this as our countryside, you see what we've done. But if you look at this next one, as our countryside. There we go. This is what it could be. This is not anti-consumerism. This is not, this is not trying to, to say, oh, civilization is bad. N none of that stuff. But it is trying to say, when we try to satisfy all of the requirements at any point in time, we end up making like Frankenstein's monster. When we try to be all of these things at all these times as best we understand them, we make a strode. Because I got to get from here to there. I have work that I have to do. Oh, there's businesses. They want to operate here too. Let's put us up there. You know, people need sidewalks. Let's put a sidewalk there too. Capitol Boulevard. <laughs> no offense to anybody who might have designed Capitol Boulevard. I, I hate driving on that. It is so dangerous. And you know what happens every time I go down Capitol Boulevard? I see people trying to cross Capitol Boulevard. And I just think, please don't. Especially when I'm driving down here. It's dangerous. But at the same point in time, you have to go through it. We have made something that is not good for cars nor for, for people. And it's 
all around us because we're trying to be all things to all people. Maybe you can see now how the temple is not the synagogue and how this is relevant to what I think the Lord is saying this morning. How many Oreos do you think we need? <laughs> so I, I, read, I read an article in 2020. So this is a real text between my wife and I. I was, I was at work. She sent me a, po- a photo of my most recent grocery store trip where I got the toffee crunch flavored cream Oreos. And she said, why you got to be like this? <laughs> so from an article in 2020, which ignores the past two years of cookie history, and we all know what great two years this has been of cookie history, but since releasing the birthday cake Oreo in 2012 to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the signature Oreo, Oreos introduced 65 flavors, including hot chicken wing Oreos, wasabi Oreos, crispy tiramisu Oreos, and carrot cake Oreos. Certain, <laughs> certain flavors you can only get in certain markets. You cannot find all these Oreos everywhere you go. But there have been blueberry pie Oreos, waffle and syrup Oreos, jelly donut Oreos, Mississippi mud pie Oreos, key lime pie, pina colada, Oreo thins. I don't think you can get that not in a thin. (laughs) (laughs) Banana split, PB&J, root beer float, Neapolitan, Peeps Oreos, and mystery Oreos. The mystery Oreo was churro flavored. They just didn't tell you that. Um, They also have the novelty Oreos. These are the seasonal ones. And they find that whenever they sell the, the, the novelty Oreos, they're 12% over the last three years. But here's the thing. Sales were not even the point. Do you know what they have found? The more of the, the weird flavors they introduce, the more people come back to the original flavor. <laughs> so I buy this. Leah says, no, no, no. But I'd kind of like an Oreo. <laughs> so she goes back to get that. So this is what I like to consider scope creep. If you, if you work in any industry, you, you get scope creep, right? Scope creep, where we, we realize that we've tried to make this bigger than what it was meant to be. And here, I'm going to remind you again of the scripture for this morning. Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Do you see? I am the vine. You are the branch. You're making a strode. I gave you creation. I, I called you by grace. You're justifying yourself by works. I've made you a family when you weren't in one. You're subdividing yourself up and divorcing. He is the vine. We're the branches. If we have ever tried to be somebody's salvation, if we've ever tried to save someone, we've, we've forgotten who's doing the work here. We are not the vine. We want to join with the Father in the work he's doing. We don't want to try and supplant it with our own efforts. The temple is not the synagogue. It doesn't aspire to be. But the temple and the synagogue help constitute healthy life with God. The, temp- the church is not the temple, nor is the church the synagogue. We read this next passage at, at a, on a micro scale, and it is, it's appropriate, but I think we need to remember that this is for the kingdom of God as well. All right. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, if not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole, were in the, um, if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? 
As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. The parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. I know what he's talking about. The parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Church, I think the church at large and us as individuals, we try to be what we're not called to be. Trying to be what others maybe expect us to be or trying to make do with what we think is best just to get through today or to tomorrow. And we become those ugly strodes. Don't let the church become a strode. The church is not primarily a charity. Do we engage with those in need? Absolutely. But our highest aim is not to feed and to clothe at the cost of all else. The church is not a social club. Now, do you want healthy community? Absolutely. But it is not primarily a social club. The church is not the temple. And on this one, I'll say thankfully because the work of the temple has already been completed. I, I see people come to me often, particularly in Holly Springs, wanting a, a professional Christian. No joke, right? They get a guy for everything. You got a lawn guy. You know, you, you, you get a, a, a deck guy. You, you get a stone, a mason guy, you know. And you're on the Rolodex. And, and you know, if you need legal help, I got a, I got a guy for that. You know, if, if you need some, some help with this, I, I know somebody for that. And people come to church often wanting, like, their guy for that. Like, here, here I, I've got a guy. I know he'll pray for me. I don't have to do the work myself because I got a guy, you know. So let me, let me give him a call, and, and he, he will take care of that thing for me. This was often the, the perspective we had on priests. You had a guy for that, somebody that you could use for these things. And when we treat the church that way, we're devoid of transformation. We're devoid of redemption. We're devoid of Christly character. We're devoid of relationship with God. I, I think the errors are plenty, but it's best understood with this. We try to make the church the entirety of the relationship that we have between God and man. We try to make the church all of these things that it can be, could be, should be, might be able to be. And none of them is bad or wrong. But it only goes so far until you've made a strode. Until you've, you've, you've got something weird that just doesn't make sense. So let me say this very clearly. Christ loves the church and we're encouraged to not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Nothing that I'm saying here is anti-church. I'm very pro-church. <laughs> very pro-church. Maybe that's clear, but just let me clarify that. Brian Houston, though, you might know him. He was the guy who, who founded the Hillsong Churches. He was asked in an interview on, on ABC, do you ever think about how Jesus would feel sitting in a, a Hillsong church? What his answer was? Honest answer? I don't think he'd like it. That's heartbreaking to me. Like, it, it really is. Like, for a pastor to say, I don't think Jesus would like our church very much, like, and this is not anti-Hillsong. This is just a public interview that I'm, I'm just repeating to you what was said. But who is that church for then? You know? And you can say it's for the people in the pews, which, you know what? That's great. God loves the people in the pews. You know? 
But if we're trying to be all things to all people, if we're trying to, to please the temple and the synagogue, if we're trying to do all this stuff at the same time, is it even recognizable as the bride of Christ? Have we forgotten what we're actually called to do and who we're called to be? Are we bringing the right questions or are we have all the wrong paradigms as we're just trying to, to, just to get through? Trying to be what society thinks a church should be. Trying to, trying to take care of this one part of this thing and, and, and forgetting about everything else. Is what we do at church for God, for the community, for us? And none of those are bad answers. But understand this. An entrepreneurial, empire-driven, capitalistic approach so that you complete amongst yourselves and the only, only the best churches are going to succeed and everything else should fail. Survival of the fittest, right? We want to have the best church ever and so all the other churches should close down because we only want the Vineyard Church of Holly Springs to be the only expression of, of what it looks like to, to be a church here in America. No. <laughs> That's not what the body of Christ looks like. We have ears and eyes and, 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 and sense of smell and hands and feet, and it's so good when we do these things together. Anecdotally, I, I know some folks who are on the contemplative side of things. Contemplative is like kind of a, I don't know, it might be a hot button issue for some peop people, but it might be the, this wonderful place where you found peace and, and restoration and, and renewal in your faith. But it's been intriguing a lot of people, and this guy was invited to a, a church to speak about it. And people loved it, and it was great, and, and they asked him to help them build out a contemplative service. And he said, uh, you know, I already did this at the church down the road. You know, like, like they've got a, a fantastic one. They've been doing this for 10 years. Like, they're, they've got this thing down. Like, you, you could partner with them and encourage your people to go there. And he said it was like sacrilege to them. We would encourage people in our church to go to another church? What? No, we have to do everything in-house. Like, how d we've got contemporary services, then we have our traditional services, we're going to have our contemplative service. We're going to do all these services so that everybody can find what they want here. So we can be the marketplace for all things Christian, and you don't have to worry about the broader expression of Christianity because everything is within these four walls. We've made a strode. <laughs> is that going to do those things well? Or is it going to do everything kind of poorly? We try to meet all these needs and all these desires that people are putting upon us. The synagogue is not the temple, but they are both kingdom. When we gather, we can't make it all about us. I think the church at large has misread and misused 1 Corinthians 9, verses 22 through 23. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. We've abused ourselves trying to fit into this mold that we think we have to do, where we do things poorly, not being who the Lord's actually called us to be. And we misuse Corinth, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, 2, that we have this treasure in jars of clay. I thought I had those pulled up. I'm sorry. My bad. <laughs> we have this treasure in jars of clay because we make these things, again, this road. Frankenstein's monster when we're trying to make ourselves, when we're trying to build the church as we think it should be. When we try to make it satisfying what the world says the church should be. We pick up hypocritical religion, turn to works instead of the grace offered. We, we deal out judgment when we construct heaven as a shadow of our worldly hopes when we create God in the image of man. There is a line between creator and creation. There's a line between heaven and and earth between Christ, the only begotten Son, and us who follow after his co heirs sons and daughters. 
And we see ourselves crossing over, not as a monster trying to assemble something from disconnected parts, tacking them on, but as the temple meant for it to be. That there's a holy of holies, that there's a courtyard, that there's places of meeting, beautifully adorned, function and form, and synagogues scattered around, people meeting, teaching, healing, a picture of Christ come down and moving forward in some way. And this is the vine and the branches, clearly as they're meant to be. He is the vine, we're the branches. We're not trying to put ourselves on the cross. We're not trying to be the salvation for the world. That's already been done. But we can enjoy that. We can join in that work because they are connected. They are connected. Church is not meant to be this 501c3 in America acting as a church, hospital, recording studio, college, preschool, community center, etc., 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 at the detriment of who we are as the bride of Christ. I can't be all things to all men. I have a hard enough time being father and husband and pastor and co-worker. And I put on these hats and then I start doing some of them poorly. You know what I mean? And I start to suffer because I'm trying to be all things and I'm trying to do them all perfectly. <coughs> and I find the end of myself. But I can be who the Lord's made me to be. I can find his divine pleasure. And you know what? When that is my source, not trying to fit these molds, not trying to be all of these, these things put upon me, but if I am just trying to be Josh, the son of God, who's been redeemed by grace, it flows. It flows to my family in a way that I hope is apparent. And I mess this thing up. I get tired and stressed and anxious, and I snap, and I've, I've gotten to the point of breaking with this new coworker who's really not doing a good job and all the extra work is coming on me and it's not good. But when I let the divine pleasure be the heartbeat, direct me, I find that I am again who I've been called to be. And from that place, I'm finding strength. I'm finding purpose. I'm finding beauty. I'm finding joy. I'm finding all of this completeness in a way that I could never make happen. Because if I make it happen, it's going to look like Frankenstein's monster. It's going to look like that strode. It's going to look like all this stuff just kind of tacked onto my life. Like that the leftover bit at the end of the day becomes this. And the, the part before I do it gets tacked on trying to make all these things. But if I let the temple be the temple, the synagogue be the synagogue, the church be the church, we're the bride of Christ. Makes sense. We go from overflow, not overwork. My favorite vineyard story, really my favorite one, is in the early days of, of, of the church whenever a, a man came up to John Wimber after service just mad, spitting fire at him. And he was like, you know, where was the church? John Wimber's like, whoa, what, what are you talking about? He says, where was the church? I was out the other day, and I found this homeless man on the street. And so I grabbed him, and I, I took him to the church, and the church was locked. And there was nobody there. And so I had to take him out to, to a restaurant, and I gave him food. I, I had to take him out shopping, and I bought him clothes, and I had to do all of this stuff myself. Where was the church? And Wimber said, I think it was exactly where it needed to be, <laughs> right? We don't have a guy to take care of this for us. We have what Christ accomplished on the cross. How beautiful to see the church being who we're called to be. One of the first things that attracted me to the vineyard, the first vineyard we went to, was that it was said from the pulpit, if we don't have a person to do this ministry, we won't do that ministry. 
we don't have a person to run the food pantry, we won't have a food pantry. If we don't have a person to run Sunday school, we won't run Sunday school. And I thought, how can you do that? <laughs> like, how, how can you actually say, you know what? We don't have a person to, to, to make coffee, so there's no coffee today. I bet you we'd find somebody to make coffee. <laughs> but this is the reality, right? How amazing to see that freedom. What do we have in-house? What has the Lord blessed us and called us to be? Do we let it become that? Or are we going to try to make it what we think it has to look like? Are we going to try to say, it must be at least this? It, we, we must do at least these three things or, or else we can't even consider ourselves a church. You know, like we make these things. And it's not saying that those standards are right or wrong or bad, but what's the lens we bring before this? What's the model that we're bringing before this? Is it something from the world? Something from our own history? Is it something from the kingdom of God? The bride of Christ is beautiful. She doesn't need to dress up in worldly garments. She doesn't need to copy the patterns of, of, of fashion. I know sometimes that we feel inadequate, especially when we see the, the majesty of the kingdom of God and we see the goodness that's possible. We know the glory of the Lord. It's that shame that we saw in the garden all over again. We feel naked. We feel exposed. We don't feel like we're good enough. We don't feel like, like I shouldn't be seen like this. It's Israel crying out for a king, wanting to be just like everybody else. Like, can't, can't we just, just try to be like everyone else? Can't we just make this happen the way that we feel like it has? It's hard to have the judges. It's, it's hard to live life this way. I think there's such beautiful pleasure to be found when we seek the pleasure of the Lord. I'm going to close with some worship for us, for you. But, but I, I hope that this is not just a thought exercise for you. But you can find the pleasure of the Lord. Not in, in, in what you're trying to make happen. Not in what you feel like you have to muster up and, and try to force about. But really on who the Lord's made you to be. And believing that he doesn't make mistakes. <laughs> And that this isn't a call to laziness. This isn't a call to say, like, like Mary and Martha is such a good story. Such a good story. You know, I feel like we, we always put so much on this, but I don't know if we pull enough out of it. You know, there was work that had to be done. There are problems that have to be solved. You know, and you think about, about the early days of, of, of the Israelites, right? They came to the, to the temple to celebrate the good crops, which meant they had been outgrowing the crops, <laughs> Right? They're celebrating the new wine, the new grain. They're celebrating the, the, the herds of cattle that they have, which means that they were out there doing that work. And then they come together to share in that together. That's the beauty of it. If everybody had just had cows, that's a bad barbecue. It's a bad church potluck when everybody brings mac and cheese, even though that's exactly what Abel would like. Right? <laughs> we can have lobster. <laughs> somebody brings the lobster. Somebody brings the mac and cheese. Somebody brings the ribs. Somebody brings the coleslaw. And together we are the body of Christ as he's called us to be. So I really mean it, all right? What has the Lord called you to? Not the person next to you. Not, not, not your hero of faith that you look at their life and say, I want to be like them when I grow up. Or, or I know that the only way I can be holy is if I'm like Leah, you know? The only way that I can be holy is, is to copy Witness Lee. The only way I can be holy is to do what C.S. Lewis was calling out here in his writings and try, try to mimic his writing, Right? I believe in the fullness of the call on your life, church. 
that he could not have called anybody else to. And if you try to put on Saul's armor, if you try to live somebody else's life, you're chasing a shadow. You're, you're chasing something that is not true to that. And that will be found through the blood of Christ. He is the vine. We are the branches.